want you to open your Bible over to the book of Joel, chapter 2, Joel chapter 2. I've entitled this today, What is God Up To? As we continue in our study here in the book of Joel, Joel, of course, one of what's called the minor prophets because his book is small. There's only a few chapters in it, but his message is a big one, and his message is an important one, and his message is counterculture to the world in which we live today, but nevertheless, God has given us his word, and the scriptures are very clear as far as what is God going to be doing in the future, and how does he deal with man? How does he deal with the world in which we live? I've entitled this today, What is God Up To?, This week we have had, as a matter of fact, today is the last day at the Benton County Fair for fair evangelism. And when I say fair, I don't mean equity, okay? I don't mean, well, every idea is fair and okay. Uh, No, it's at the Benton County Fair, and we do evangelism there. We have a a double-wide booth, and we do surveys, and then we talk to people about the Lord. Uh, I had a blessing of leading two to Christ on Thursday, And I know others have trusted Christ, but it's always a very interesting experience. On Thursday when I was there, I had someone ask me, which I figured this was going to come up with somebody, and I'm sure other people have had conversations, because it's like the stuff about COVID and the vaccine, it's sort of like the visitor that you didn't want to visit your home who won't leave. You just wish they'd go away. You just wish the whole topic would go away. And let's get on with life. Let's focus on what is most important. Even me saying that, somebody's going to email me about that and say, well, don't you think this is important? I had a a situation where I was dealing with somebody who's been watching us for quite a while. And he said, I notice you're not taking any position on the vaccine and this and that. And and I want to know whether you've had the vaccine or not. And And uh, we go back and forth and about COVID and, you know, and then he started in on, well, you've got a responsibility. God's going to hold you accountable for your church people, on their well-being and all these kind of things. And he's pressing me. Did you or didn't you get the vaccine? Did you or didn't you get the vaccine? Can you imagine? Don't even go to this church and somebody's saying that. Finally, in a kind, I thought it was a kind way. I said, you know, I kind of see it like voting. It's not your business. And that did not sit well. And so he he went after me some more. He actually emailed the church office and said, are you aware that your pastor says this to people and all that? You know, listen, I had someone at the fair the other day asked me if the COVID vaccine was the mark of the beast. Simple answer to that. The answer is no. Okay, it is not the mark of the beast. The beast has to be here before his mark can come. And the beast is not going to be known until after the rapture takes place. So Christian, would you just forget about it and start sharing the gospel with people? Okay, don't get sidetracked on this. He has to be here before his mark. Not only that, but there is more to the mark of the beast than a physical thing. It is a spiritual pledge of allegiance to the beast. That is clear from the book of Revelation. So there's a spiritual component to it. It's not just a physical one. Not only that, but remember, where do you get the mark? On your hand or on your forehead? Has anybody had a COVID vaccine in their head? (laughs) Hold still, bap, you know? Thanks, I needed that. 
No, no. Let's just, you know what, folks? If we'd spend as much time in the Word of God as we do searching internet sites that support what we believe, we'd be a whole lot better. We really would. We as believers are going to be taken out of the world before the tribulation and the day of the Lord begins. Only after the church is taken out of the world does the Antichrist come on the scene. But it is no doubt the idea of the controls and pushing and forcing and and all of that, it is no doubt a conditioning. We all can see that, right? It's a conditioning of society and letting the government more and more control you and forcing you to do things. That is just going to increase as time goes on because that is what's going to be going on during the tribulation period. It's going to be a one-world government. Eventually, that's what it will be, a one-world government. And yes, you will be forced into things. And one of the things the people will, during the tribulation, are going to be forced into is to you either receive the mark of the beast, you pledge allegiance to him, or there's a good chance you will die the martyr's death. Okay? That we know from Scripture. That's not hype. That's not based on how many hits you get on YouTube. This is a fact. First it was, and of course, this thing with the controlling, okay? We, we have seen, okay, you had to have a, a mask. You couldn't, uh, merchants couldn't buy and sell unless they made it, you know, where you had to have the mask. Isn't that interesting? But it's not the mark of the beast. The mask is not the mark of the beast. If it is, we all lost the mark because very few people are wearing a mask now. See how ridiculous this gets? Now the vaccine, you have to be vaccinated before you can go to certain colleges. I know St. Ben's and and, uh, St. John's University, you have to be fully vaccinated before you can go to school. You might say, I don't like that. I don't like it either. I don't like it either. I think it's an infringement on personal rights, but this is the world in which we live and we just go on as believers, okay? You know, some of these things wouldn't be so bad if man was trustworthy, but man is not trustworthy. That's the problem. We have, in our country now, we are less trusting of government than any time in my lifetime, and I've been around for a while now. You just don't trust government. You don't trust anything they say. It's like, okay, can I believe that? It used to be we had the presupposition that when our leadership spoke, they spoke truth. They came from a foundation of truth. Now you don't know where they're coming from. You might say, Pastor, you sound like you're cynical. More and more, unfortunately. I don't want to be. I really don't. But I'm not going to be gullible instead. And we shouldn't be with that. Nevertheless, we continue on. See, because God has given us the prophetic picture. God has told us what is going to happen. Okay, and this thing with COVID, with the vaccine and all that, this is just a, a little blip in the overall picture, okay? It's, it's not everything. It's not the end of the world. These things just fit into the picture. How do they fit in? How important are they? Well, I don't think they're a big deal when you look at the big picture of what's coming. Here's the key, folks. I'll say this now, and then we'll talk about it more at the end of the message. Listen, listen. Do you want the solution to all of this? Here it is. Put your faith in Jesus Christ to get you to heaven. Trust in him as your savior, the one who died for your sins and rose from the grave. 
If you'll put your faith, if you'll trust in him as your savior, that moment he gives you everlasting life. Whenever you die, you will go to live with him forever in heaven. It's just that simple. The truth of it is this. If we don't get raptured out of the world, every one of us is going to die of something. So keep that in mind. I'd say, well, not me. I'm, I'm young. I'll live forever. Well, you will live forever, either in heaven or hell, but you won't live on this planet forever. This is the truth. Now, we are looking at not the rapture of the church today. We are looking at what starts right after the rapture of the church. Joel talks a lot about something called the day of the Lord. We are talking about prophecy, things that have not yet happened that God tells us will happen. I have shared this quote with you before, but it is an important statement. Prophecy is the mold of history. Prophecy is the mold of history. You can read what's in the Bible, and whatever takes place in the world is going to fit into what God has already said. Why? God is in control, ultimately. He will bring his plan to pass. Now, Joel chapter 2, we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2, kind of lay the foundation. We did it last week, studied verses, um, uh, well, several of the verses in this chapter. But in verse 1, blow ye the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. And we can say today, yes, it is, and it's very, very close a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever like it, neither shall any more after it, even to the years of many generations. We know if you compare scripture with scripture, this is talking about a future time. And God tells us that After the rapture of the church, after the church is taken out of the world, all believers in Jesus Christ, those who have trusted him alone as their savior, they're going to be taken out of the world in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And then after that is when the day of the Lord begins. I believe that day of the Lord goes from right after the rapture all the way through the seven-year tribulation period, all the way through the kingdom age, the millennium, okay? And that is when it ends at the end of that period of time. Okay. Now in a broad way, the day of the Lord is God intervening in the world's affairs and bringing judgment. Okay. There are places in scripture where the day of the Lord refers not to so much that period in the future, but also in the day in which God was talking about the day of the Lord. But Generally speaking, usually when the day of the Lord is being talked about, it's talking about that seven-year period and then the millennium, that period after that, when we talk about prophetically, okay? But I want you to understand this. Last week, we talked a little bit about this tribulation period. By the way, did you know in verse 2, did you notice a day of darkness, gloominess, a day of clouds, of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains? It is going to be a time of judgment, seven-year period of time where God is going to be pouring out his wrath, his punishment upon the nation of Israel and also upon the nations of the world during that seven-year period of time. You might say, well, why would he do that? It's because of man's sin and rebellion and rejection of the Lord. That is why God does that. But he does it for a reason. 
okay? And we're going to look at several issues concerning that today. First and foremost, it is always God's desire for us to turn to him. God wants to bless man. God wants to, for man to have a good experience with him, if you want to call it that. But it's up to man to come to God on his terms, And God is, because he's God, he has a right to say, listen, that's wrong what you're doing. I call that sin what you're doing, okay? He's not going to change his mind on that. See, that's our arrogancy today. Well, you know what? I don't think it's bad. Oh, well, what is God going to do? Is God going to say, wait, what? Oh, you think it's bad? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll change on that. No, God is God. We are not God. We're like ants on the sidewalk. We're dealing with almighty God here. He is the one who lays down right and wrong. He is the one who says what is acceptable and not acceptable. And he talks about this thing that we do, this rebellion that we have as human beings, and he calls it sin. When we miss the mark of his will, of his desire, we miss the mark of God's perfection. And he says, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. God says, there's none righteous. No, not one. Not one in themselves. But it is always God's desire for us to turn to him. And God, at times, he puts pressure on society and on the world and on mankind and on Israel and even on us as believers in Christ and says, listen, I'm tightening the screws because what you need to do is you need to Submit to what I say because I've got blessings in store for you. I've got wonderful things in store for you, but you can't have them while you're in rebellion. In Joel, he is talking to the nation of Israel. In verses 1 through 11, we saw some of the judgments that are coming upon the world. Now, while there are many applications, no doubt it is also referring to the seven-year tribulation period. Jump down to verse 12 with me. Joel 2, verse 12. It says, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, he said, I, I'm not, I'm, with Jews, they would, uh, okay, we're going to show grief, we're going to show sorrow, so what we'll do is we'll, we'll tear our garments. Oh, 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 I'm so grieved by my sin. God says, you know what, I'm not interested in your garments, I'm interested in your heart. You can go through the show of the outward, but I'm interested on the inward. And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he has, now this is going to get interesting now, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Wait, 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 wait. Did I read that right? And repenteth him of the evil. Now, let's do a little defining of words here. And this is very important for you to understand today. The word evil here, it can also mean mischief. Yes, it can mean evil, Hebrew words. It can also mean mischief. It can mean trouble. It can be affliction. In other words, they were under God's judgment. It can mean it's the idea of calamity. God can bring calamity and judgment on people. That is what this word means here. And you notice in verse 14, who knoweth if he will return and repent? This is talking about God. 
and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Now, you might say, wait a minute, God repenting of evil? That doesn't sit well with me. Or he will return and repent? I don't understand that. Well, let me explain Old Testament repentance to you. Very important today. This may be the first time and the last time you ever hear this from somebody. Because people usually don't talk about this in the Old Testament. The word repent or repentance here in the Old Testament, we find that there are two Hebrew words translated as repent, okay? The first one is naham. I think that's how you say it. I'm not a Jew, so if you're Jewish, forgive me if I didn't say it right. Which appears in its various forms 108 times in the Old Testament. It literally means to sigh or to breathe deeply. Kind of like a, like that. Practically speaking, practically speaking though, in other words, how does this work itself out? There we have a definition, but how does it work itself out? Practically speaking, it means to change your mind or to reconsider or to think differently. Now that sounds a lot like the New Testament repentance, metanoia, which means to change your mind, to think differently. This is the application of the Hebrew word that's behind the word repent in the Old Testament. This word is most often used, now this is interesting in the Old Testament. When you think of repent, you usually think of man repenting, right? We just naturally think of that. This word is most often used in reference to God and not man in the Old Testament. We see in verse 13, and repenteth him of the evil. You notice that in verse 13. If repentance means, as what most people claim repentance means, turning from one's sin or being sorry for your sin, a problem arises, doesn't it? Because who's doing the repenting? God is. And in the Old Testament, he's the one who's doing it more often than man. As we read the Old Testament, We not only have God who frequently, so if it means turn from sin, and that's what most people think repent means, it doesn't mean that. I'd say, well, I I looked in uh, dictionary.com online and that's what it has. Here's why it has that, folks, because words change meaning as time goes on. Language is not static, okay? Language changes words. Uh, Do you remember when the word gay was okay? That rhymes, doesn't it? Gay was okay. Do you remember? There are songs that we used to sing as children and they had the word gay in them. When we think of gay today, most people don't think of happy or joyful. They think of homosexuals. See how the word has changed over time? Repent is one of those things. The word repent, well, I've given you the definition. It Practically speaking, it means to change your mind, to think differently, to reconsider. All right? Now, here in this passage, we have God repenting. Now, again, if people say, well, no, no, it means to turn from sin. Okay, if it means to turn from sin, we have a problem. As we read the Old Testament, we not only have a God who frequently turns from his sins, well, that's a problem theologically. We also have a God who frequently refuses to turn from his sins. Well, that's a problem also 
This simply makes no sense, seeing God has no sins to turn from. God is perfect. God not only doesn't sin, God can't sin. And so it can't mean turn from your sins because usually it's God who's repenting or not repenting in the scriptures. Now this fact should sound an alarm in the mind of any Bible-believing Christian about the meaning of repentance. Hold your place here and turn with me to Jeremiah 18. Now we've taught many, many times on the issue of repentance. It's a change of mind. It's a change in the thinking, okay? It's you having a change of attitude or reconsidering something. It has to do with the mind. It has to do with the mind, okay? Now, uh, will that affect the lifestyle? It depends on the situation. It depends on the application of it. But repentance does not mean to turn from your sins, That can be the result of your change of mind, but it isn't repentance in itself. How many of you understand what I'm saying? Okay, I'm glad you understand that. Jeremiah 18.8, it says, if that nation against whom I have pronounced, now this is God speaking. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent, God speaking, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Now, the the word evil, again, the calamity, okay, or the trouble or the affliction. And if the people will turn from their evil, you notice, then God says, I will repent. I will reconsider. I will have a change in thinking about what I was going to do that I thought to do unto them. Again, evil here means calamity. Evil here is what comes upon them because of their sin. Calamity comes. Here's what it comes down to, folks. This is an issue of sowing and reaping. This is an issue of of God saying to man, listen, if you do this, I'm going to do this. Well, we don't really want that result. Again, God says, then don't do that. If you don't do that, this won't come. That's what it's saying. Do you get that? I know there are people say, well, God can't change his mind. God can't change his mind. No, you're talking about his character doesn't change. God can change his mind. As a matter of fact, here he is talking about, listen, if you go down this road, this is what I'm going to do. But if you change your mind, I won't do that. I won't bring that upon you. We have a record of it. So when you talk about God being immutable, that means he can't change. He can change his mind. It's just that he as a person doesn't change. God doesn't change. But he can do this. Verse 9. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant, if I do evil in my sight, again, I bring calamity here, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the the good, okay? If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I will benefit them. So it is clear here, God repenting of the good, it has to mean a change in his thinking, a reconsideration. Look with me to Jeremiah 26. Now, I could show you case after case after case. Jeremiah 26. Usually when you see that idea of repent, somewhere in the context there, it's something about what somebody is thinking, a thought. You think this, 
And then the word repent is used somewhere around there. Why? Because repent means to change your thinking, to change your mind. Jeremiah 26, verse 2. Thus saith the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak unto all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command thee to speak unto them, diminish not a word. Tell them everything I've told you to tell them. If so be that they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way. Now he's talking about the nation of Judah. By the way, folks, let me just pause and say this. God deals with nations according to their morality, according to how they respond to the principles of God's word. Yes, God deals with the individual according to his faith in Jesus Christ. God deals with a nation. God knows that the majority of people in the world are not saved. But if a nation honors the principles of his word, such as righteousness and that which is right and true and honest and so forth, we will reap the results of those things. And I'll show you that in just a minute. So he's talking about a nation here. Verse 3. Jeremiah 26, 2, if so be that they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way, that I may repent of the evil, again, the calamity, which I purpose to do unto them because of the evil of their doings, okay? So, does God repent? He does. What does that mean? Depending on what man does, especially his focus is on the nation of Israel, Okay, now listen, where's Israel today? They're in rebellion. They're in unbelief. They've come back May 14th, 1948. I mentioned it last week. They are coming back to Israel in a state of unbelief. You go to Israel today, you might say, well, all these Jews are coming back. And you think, well, these are faithful according to the Jewish faith. Listen, most of them are not. They're agnostic. They're nationalists. They have not trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. And by the way, he is their Messiah. And they need to trust in him for salvation. Okay, let's go back to Joel. So I hope you understand this issue of repentance. I know if you've never heard it before, it can be hard to understand. But trust me, this is the way it fits in Scripture. Number two, God's judgments are meant to bring people to repentance, a change of mind. In other words, instead of rebelling towards God and practicing idolatry and sin, instead of the nation of Israel following the nations of the world and being involved in idol worship and child sacrifice, and they were, and even cannibalism of their own children. Now, they, I don't know if they're doing it today, but I know they, some do practice abortion, which is child murder. Instead of rebellion towards God and practicing sin... This change of mind would lead them to follow God's word and living a life pleasing to God. Having this change of mind. What is God wanting for the Jew? The same as for the Gentile. Faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then once you're saved, God wants us to now yield to his word and live according to scripture. That's the will of God for every person on the planet. Do you get to heaven by living according to Scripture? No, that would be works for salvation. You get to heaven through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as your Savior. But once we've trusted Christ, does God have a life for us as believers to live? Yes. But just like it's a choice whether you trust Christ as Savior, it's a choice how you live. Now listen, 
You have a choice on how you live, but you don't have a choice on what you get. The results, it's a matter of sowing and reaping. If you sow a sinful life, you're going to reap the results of that. I say, well, I have a right to choose what I want. You do have that freedom, but you don't have a right as far as the results. You get the results that God has said will come. It's the same with us, and it's the same with the Jewish people. You're either Jew or Gentile, by the way. So instead of rebellion towards God and practicing idolatry, the change of mind would lead them to follow God's word. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chambers and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? But this is where Judah found itself. This is the situation of the Jewish people when Joel was prophesying. They're in rebellion towards God. They're not submitted to him. They're doing their own sin. And God says, you'll pay the consequences of that. And not only that, remember at the beginning of Joel, they have seen a a judgment of locusts, actual locusts come and devour their land and leave it bare and naked. That was a judgment from the hand of God. And by the way, God can still and does still do that today in the world. He sends judgments on this planet. See, God has always pleaded with Israel to return to him. Always. Not only in the time of the prophets in the Old Testament. Let me show you. Go with me to Matthew chapter 23. But in the time of Jesus himself. I've had people ask me, Now, I will not try to spend a lot of time on this because we could spend a lot of time on this. What would have happened if the Jews would have accepted Jesus? Would he have still had to go to the cross? Well, the answer to that is yes. Why? It's prophesied in the Old Testament. We had to have a payment for our sin. If they would have accepted Jesus, we still, mankind still would have had a payment for sin. And the only one who could pay for our sin would be the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. Folks, our sin is the problem. I know people say, well, just preach Jesus. Don't talk about how how man's a sinner and all that. Jesus wouldn't have come if it wasn't for our sin. Do we understand it? He'll be called Jesus for he shall save his people from their sin. It's the sin that's the problem. If we weren't sinners, we wouldn't need a savior. Here's Jesus, heartbroken, sitting, looking at Jerusalem. These are in his last days. And he says in verse 37, Matthew 23, 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Look at the next phrase. Thou that killest the prophets. In other words, the prophets came and prophesied and they killed them. They didn't want to hear their message. And stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wing, wings and ye would not. 
You're stubborn in your sin. You're hardened by your sin. You're in rebellion and rejection. Is that not like the world we are in today? Yes. Are there some who will accept the Lord and trust Christ the Savior? Yes. And that is our great commission to go. We don't know who will and who won't. But we ought to be able to say to every single person we meet, God loves you and he wants you to live with him forever in heaven. That is a sincere invitation and truth. Jew or Gentile, salvation's only found through Jesus Christ. Don't say that to a Jew, you'll offend them. Jesus said to them, unless you believe that I am, in other words, Jehovah God, you shall die in your sins. They need to hear it. Jesus said it to Jewish leadership. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He stood on that truth. He is the Messiah. How often I would have gathered you, thy children. And what was the problem? They wouldn't have it. They didn't want it. This leads us to our next point, and it is this. Remember this, that when we talk about the day of the Lord... The tribulation period in particular is what I'm focused on. The day of the Lord is meant to humble Israel and prepare them to receive Jesus when he comes back at the end of that seven-year tribulation period. Zechariah says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. They'll recognize him and they'll put their faith in him. But this day of the Lord is meant to humble Israel and prepare them Let me say this. Now, I don't like saying what I'm about to say. It's just like me, saying the word hell is disturbing to me. I use it in church. I talk about it, that people are going there because that's what the Bible says. But hell disturbs me. The whole concept of hell. People suffering in agony forever and ever, no break forever. It is a constant state Forever, past time, and eternity. It's a constant state. That bothers me. This is a problem. And what is coming for the Jewish people? Here's what I'm getting at. It will be worse than the Holocaust was. Way worse. Oh, you say that flippantly. I don't say it flippantly. I'm telling you what God says in his word. It will be worse than the Holocaust. It will be the worst judgment on the Jewish people that there has ever been in the history of the world. That is why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's yet future. Now, we love the Jewish people around here. We love them, and we want them to accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. All we can do is tell them the truth. But I can tell you this, What's coming is the worst time in history. And why is it worse? Because God is trying to humble them to prepare them to receive Jesus as their Messiah when he comes back. It is also a time when God pours out his wrath on a rebellious and a wicked world that is getting more brazen and more rebellious every day that we live. Let me show you, this is amazing. Why do we believe the Bible? Let me show you something that God put in his word 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, okay? Turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Let's look at a description 
written 3,000 years ago that perfectly describes the world that we live in today. But I want you to see what God says, and then I want you to see how it's going to turn out. Remember, prophecy is the mold of history. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 5. This is a prophetic psalm. It deals with the tribulation period, and it also deals with the kingdom age a little bit. And we'll navigate that as we go through here. We won't spend a lot of time, but I want you to see it. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. They're out of control. They're in rebellion towards God. Their imaginations, their thoughts are on that which is worthless, that which is perverse, vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and this is exactly how it will be during the tribulation period. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's Jesus, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We refuse to be controlled by God. We refuse to be in bondage to him. Bondage to him? He offers the blessings of a lifetime and eternity. But this is how twisted the mind of man is. He sees God as that which he doesn't want, and yet God is the very one he needs. But this is where it is today. He that sitteth in the heavens, that's God. So here's response to them. God doesn't see that attitude and go, what am I going to do now? No. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, that's a tribulation period, and vex them in their sore displeasure. Now you go to the end of the tribulation, what do you see? Verse 6, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's Jesus when he comes back to rule and reign. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Verses 6 through 8 deal with the millennium. Verse 8, ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Jesus will rule and reign and own the world once he comes back to rule and reign at the end of the tribulation period. Verses 9 through 12, again, deal with the tribulation and the second coming. Verse 9, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Wake up, guys, you better listen. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, adhere to him. Lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. That's how powerful Jesus is. He only has to kindle his wrath a little bit. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. That's what it always comes down to, doesn't it? See, Proverbs 14.34 says about nations and their relationship with God. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people If our country, the United States, continues to slide and become more wicked and more perverse and more corrupt, it's just a matter of time, folks, before God intervenes and says, that's it. I am coming down with judgment on this country. We can only spit in his face for so long. But you see, man is stubborn in his sin. He is infected by it and will be 
destroyed by it. Very quickly, Revelation chapter 16. This is the attitude, and it goes along beautifully with what we saw in Psalm 2. This is the attitude of the world during the tribulation. Now, listen to this. God is pouring out his wrath in a series of judgments on planet Earth, getting man, okay, to say, I give up, I yield, I put my faith in you, you are God, you are the Savior. But man is so wicked and so corrupt. Look at this, Revelation 16, 8. This is just a sample, by the way. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and the power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. You talk about global warming. This is the real deal here. And men were scorched with great heat, and what did they do? They didn't say, oh God, oh God, okay, okay. We'll trust in you. No, look at it. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God. Isn't it interesting? They knew, they will know where it's coming from. But his rebellion is so ingrained, and man is so wicked, that he will blaspheme the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. They didn't have a change of attitude. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. The Antichrist and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. Can you imagine? They're biting on their tongues. They're in so much pain. And and what did they do? And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. See, God is dealing with nations, how they live, how they respond to the principles of his word. Verse 21, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. Every stone about the weight of a talent, okay? You know how big that is? How many of you have ever had hail damage on your car? You ain't seen nothing. Well, we won't see it. We'll be in heaven. The weight of a talent here, you know what that is? It's 100 pounds each. 100 pounds. One hailstone. And what did men do? Wasn't enough. Their car's completely crushed by one hailstone. And what did they do? And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. He just won't give in. For the plague thereof was exceeding great. So... Where does this bring us? Well, it brings us to the end of this message, and it's simply this. The only solution to man's problems is salvation through Jesus Christ. That is the only solution. Friend, you look for a solution any other place, you'll suffer the consequences of that because it is a fake solution. It is a fake solution. The only solution is Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 3. Why go through all the pain, all the suffering, Why choose, yes, choose hell as your eternal destiny? When Jesus Christ has come, he has bought and paid for our ticket to heaven. He's bought and paid our way, and he offers salvation, eternal life, as a free gift to mankind. Free gift, no strings attached. And Jesus said, if you'll trust in me that I died on a cross and paid for your sin, I will give you everlasting life. I promise you, you'll never go to hell. I promise that you'll spend forever with me in heaven. Why would man reject that? Because of his pride. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, that's all, shall not perish, 
but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, mankind in his natural state is in a state of condemnation and judgment. That is his condition. He's already condemned. If you're already condemned, heaven can't be based then on what you do, how you live, because God says you're already condemned. The only solution is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. If this is you and me and my wallet is our sin, we're sinners. We're separated from God. You can't go to heaven with even one sin. And God says, I'm serious about sin. Sin has to be paid for. The wages of sin is death. If you die with it, you'll spend forever separated from God in hell. No good works will take away sin. That's why you can't earn it. This is why Jesus came, because we couldn't help ourselves. In this hand, representing him, when he went to the cross, he died and he made the payment so we would not have to. Imagine it. He paid for all your sins so you don't have to. That's how much he loves you. He was buried and he rose from the grave. And here's what he says in his word. If you believe in him, if you put your faith in him as your savior, you will not perish. You won't go to hell. But you have that moment. You have everlasting life. You go to heaven. If you believe, you're not condemned. If you don't believe, you're already condemned. Why? Because you haven't believed just that simple. So if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, would you trust in him today? Friend, he is the one who says who gets into heaven and who doesn't. And it's simply the one who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that he died and paid for your sins. It's not him and you, it's him. Your good works are of no value to get you to heaven. Trust in Christ. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.